Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm Raymond Docapel. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we will be discussing the hit 21 pilot single, Level of Concern, released in 2020. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. After that intro, I'm expecting level of concern to come in, but knowing in my head that it's going to be the no new words intro music. I mean, we could change it. We could just make it <laughs> a level of concern. For this one episode, we can break copyright. Because yeah. we never break copyright ever. Never no, ever. N- no, nothing to see here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> so this is our, our second episode about a song. Our first episode was uh, U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is a little bit, a little bit different vibe. Um... But there's still some indie pop rock vibes going on. Um, So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about 21 Pilots as a band. Uh, Raymond, how much do you know about 21 Pilots? I think the first song I heard from them was was Stressed Out. That happens to a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a relatable song. And I think that I listened to some (laughs) of their other... <laughs> that was that much is obvious. I guess that's why people <laughs> liked it. Um, and I guess I listened to some of their other stuff, and I think that in general their particular style of music wasn't really uh, my uh, my personal taste. It's not something it wouldn't mm-hmm. be my go to as like this is just the music I want to listen to every day. Um, but I could tell that their style of music and the contents of their lyrics were different enough from the mainstream that I understood why they were popular. Um, Yeah. And it's, and and it's like, I see that with a lot of bands. It's like, okay, they they have a very specific quality or style to them. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's not, it's not conventional. It's not just following the same four chords. And so, so they're interesting. And, and and this song is interesting too. So, yeah, you but yeah. you seem to know more about the band itself. So let's let's delve a little into that. Well, well, Twenty One Pilots has the rare distinction of being so. So my older brother Caleb, who wrote our theme music, he is a musician and he literally does audio engineering stuff for game companies. Uh, that's his job. He really cares about originality in music and. Um, he hears things that nobody else can hear. He really, it's hard to please him when it comes to music. And so growing up, my, I and my younger siblings liked a lot of music that he didn't like and all the music that he liked, we didn't like. And there was very little common ground when we all got in the car together. It was difficult to find something that we all liked. But 21 Pilots has the rare distinction of being one of like two artists that we all liked. The other one being Owl City. Um, it's interesting that... Um, for our, our partic- the particular theme song we selected, he has definitely embraced 
um, unoriginality. <laughs> At least maybe he's yep. come to some some conclusion about that. <laughs> that there are no new words. Well, apparently we yeah. thought for a while that 21 Pilots did have some new, new, new words. Um, so 21 Pilots consists of a musical duo. It's just a, a two-person band. Uh, Tyler Joseph, who's the lead singer, who writes the, the music, and Josh Dunn. Josh Dunn is the drummer. Um, Tyler Joseph... Uh, writes most of his songs first by writing poetry. So he writes a lot of free verse poetry. Um, a lot of it is deeply personal. It's about his own life, his own struggles. And then he puts that poetry to music and changes it a little bit to make it match um, what he's writing. He plays lots of different instruments. He's written lots of songs on the ukulele, uh, but he also plays guitar. He plays piano. Um, he and Josh Dunn are well known for having wild concerts they do a lot of different shenanigans uh they do backflips off of flaming pianos um it sounds pretty cool to go to one of their concerts uh <laughs> they independently released two albums just by themselves before they signed on with fueled by ramen uh to create their first label debut which was vessel an album in 2013 there's some impressive statistic about vessel i think it's like the second album in history ever to get like gold certification on every single one of the tracks something like that um vessel was followed by blurry face in 2015 and then trench in 2018 and the trajectory of that music followed a thematic shift so especially early on tyler joseph wrote a lot about uh, his personal struggles with anxiety and with depression, and a lot about Christian themes, so how his faith interacted with his mental health struggles. And the fact that he wrote so honestly about those issues is what drew a lot of people to his music. Um, and then over time, so Blurry Face, the album in 2015, introduced this concept that he had this secondary... Uh, voice in his head that was the voice of of depression and of anxiety um, and of his struggles that told him lies that told him things that weren't true so as he was describing this this demon in his head basically who he gave a name and the name of this demon was blurry face um and that was his theme for a while in in blurry face and then eventually uh, in 2018 when they released trench trench starts to deal more with his struggles with maybe losing his faith. He still calls himself a Christian, but he's being honest about uh, his doubts and his struggles of wondering whether or not there really is a God or whether the Christian faith is really true. Um, and then their most recent album is Scaled and Icy in 2021. Um, so like I said, lots of 21 Pilot songs focus on Christian themes, um, but that focus has changed sort of over time. Uh, Level of Concern, though, is a little bit breaking the norm because it's a single, it's not from an album, and it was written during the early stages of COVID quarantine. So it was released in April 2020. The music video was filmed in quarantine. Um, the music video depicts the fact that Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn are working together, not in the same room. Uh, they're sending each other thumb drives and stuff through the mail, uh, which obviously isn't really happening, but it's a depiction of the kind of hoops you have to jump through to work together um, over quarantine, which uh, Raymond and uh, I sort of experience <laughs> given the fact that we make a podcast together and live uh, over a thousand miles apart. Yeah. So in the song, uh, to talk about the lyrics a little bit, Tyler, 
who usually sings as himself, is presumably talking to his wife, Jenna. Um, he's done that a lot before, specifically in uh, Tear in My Heart. And I can't remember the name of the other song. He's like, sorry, I think, sorry oh, I can't help you there. I, I don't. <laughs> uh, Smithereens is the other song. So uh, he's done that before. Um, throughout the song, there's this thematic comparison of the risks and the dangers of a relationship um, with the risks and dangers of the pandemic. So he's really explicitly talking about the COVID pandemic and about how the world is panicking. Um, and Tyler, as a singer, uh, he isn't sure how afraid he should be, but he's pretty afraid. He's pretty nervous. Um, and his wife, Jenna, presumably, I mean, based on the song, uh, appears to be much less concerned than he is. Um, and he asks her to quarantine with him. So he talks about having a bunker underneath the surface. Would you be my little quarantine? They're going to hide from the world. Um, but in the end, he, he admits when he gets to the chorus that that's not really the way that he wants her to bring down his level of concern. Um, he says, so the chorus is, because uh, I told you my level of concern, but you walked by like you never heard. And you could bring down my level of concern. Just need you to tell me we're all right. Tell me we're okay. So the pretty simple message of the song is that he is relying on his wife, presumably, to bring down his love level of concern, not by hiding from the pandemic or hiding from the world, but just by telling him that things will be okay. Um, so that's the pretty straightforward message of the song. Uh, the first question that I have is obviously there are political implications to talking about the COVID pandemic and how afraid we should be about that. And I don't really want to talk about that. Um, if we place ourselves back in March of 2020, nobody really knew how afraid we should be, right? We didn't yeah. know much about the pandemic. We didn't know much about what COVID really was. And there was something to be said for being afraid of something when you don't really understand it. And when you're like Tyler Joseph and you have a young family, you have an infant child, <laughs> um, you don't know so how afraid should, you should be. What should be your level of concern? Right. Exactly. Like he seems, he seems disconcerted that his wife isn't as concerned as he is, but he also wants her to make him less afraid. He wants her to tell him that he doesn't need to be as afraid as he is. Uh, presumably, even if that's not true, even if he should be afraid. So I guess the first question is then, yeah, like you said, what, what should our level of concern be? What place does fear have in our lives? Ought we never to be afraid or... Are there times and places to have a healthy level of concern? So I remember one of the guys from the Mythbusters show, I think it was Adam, who was telling a story about how he almost died during filming an episode. He was They were testing out a car, uh, whether a car could like, you could escape from a car that was sinking underwater and he got trapped in the car while it was sinking. And he was describing what he was going to do to get out of that situation. And he said, the first thing that came to my mind is... Um, panicky people die, calm people survive. And that's how he survived. Um, and he was like in a really dangerous situation because, I mean, he was actually stuck and he was in a car that was sinking and he was, his, his um, oxygen mask wasn't working. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, that, that story stuck with me because, because I think that that's, that's true. That's very true. And, 
it may in fact be the case that you will die. Like if you're in that sort of situation where, yeah, you, you might not actually get out. But the point is, is like, if you want any possibility of getting out of that situation, you're not going to get out by panicking. And so I think that acting like everything is going to be okay is not necessarily pretending that you know everything will be okay. It's simply allowing the possibility for things to be okay. Mm -hmm. Because if you're presuming... If you're presuming that there is no possible way that you can get out of the situation, that you're just not even, you're not letting the situation get better. Because sometimes the situation gets better and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but you, if you want it to get better at all, you need to, you need to be optimistic. It's, it's the only, it's the only option. And I wanted to also kind of go back to the, the chorus too, because... I think that there's more than one interpretation that you could that can you can yield from from this because she says he, this he's saying I told you my level of concern but you walked by like you never heard and I think that you were sort of saying that the better thing or the thing that he wanted her to do was to say that everything is going to be all right in other words, the idea that walking by like you not like you never heard was like a bad thing that something that he didn't want his wife to do. And I don't know if that is necessarily the, only, the the case. I mean, I think that there's more to be said there in the sense that maybe it's actually a good thing that that she walks by like she never heard in the sense that it's like I'm not panicking, you know. I'm scared and, and you're not scared. Like, so maybe the stance is more like I'm, uh, she's observing her. Like, I, I'm so scared, but it's like, what's with, with you? Why are, why, why are you so calm right now? And I'm just sort of mm -hmm. observing the fact that you're so calm. And, and by doing that, you actually brought down my level of concern. I don't think it has to be one or the other. Also. Right. Well, that, because he uses the word and it's a conjunction. It's not, but. So it's not either or. So maybe yeah. there's an it's an addition to the thought, not necessarily a, a contrast to the previous thought. And I also think there's a level of ambiguity as to what it is that she's hearing. Because he says, I told you my level of concern. And then she walks by like she never heard. But it's a little unclear to me whether or not it's that she didn't hear him express his level of concern. Or whether she is walking by like she didn't hear the news, like what's going on. And either way, I think, expresses sort of the same thing, which is that, what you're saying, she's calm um, in the face of this this sort of faceless monster, this pandemic where they don't know what's going on. They don't know um, how much they should be afraid. And she's just clearly less concerned than he is. Um, but I agree that I don't, I don't think that he really thinks that's a bad thing in the end. Because he wants her to say that it's going to be okay. Um, and in some sense, he's relying on her to tell them that things are going to be okay. And it actually it took me back a little bit to Hadestown, uh, way back to, to our first episode. Um, because the line, I told you my level of concern, and you walked by like you never heard, could be Eurydice to Orpheus. Um, 
she's so concerned with the practical world and with how are they going to live and have food and water and shelter and all this and is, well, she's a little upset with Orpheus uh, because it doesn't seem like he's listening to those concerns of hers. But the thing that he is concerned with is music and art and this ethereal realm that's, that's partly in his head and uh, making the world better by singing it into, into gold, into a world that's better. Yeah. So when you're, when you're, you're stuck in a boat and the boat is sinking, then everyone is kind of on the same playing field in the sense that we're all human and we're not omnipotent and we're not omniscient and maybe we're in on the Titanic and we're all going to die. And so if you're like in that place as it's possible Orpheus and Eurydice are, are kind of in that place in it. And when we were in quarantine in 2020, we didn't know and since still don't know whether we are in that position or not. And, and even, even, extracting it apart from the particular situation we're in i mean we are in the in a sneaking boat in the sense that we're all going to die so mm-hmm. um so the Careful. question comes up this is, is a happy podcast <laughs> well yeah i guess i guess that 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 came out a little morbid didn't it um but that was good <laughs> well i mean life is morbid right <laughs> but because it's a comedy podcast about death yeah so anyway so anyway, what was I saying? Um, yeah, so if we're all in the same boat and we're all, we're all kind of equalized in that and that we all have equal reason to panic, then, you know, like, what are we going, what's the best way to respond in that situation? And let's consolidate that to, like, just a relationship between two people. Um, you may realize that you have just as much reason to panic as the other person because you don't have an advantage or any kind of special knowledge that would help assure the other other person that may be your situation however you can't both panic that just mm-hmm. you can't do that so if you're in that situation and the other person is panicking then it doesn't matter whether you know more or have more power than they do which may be the situation if you were if it was like a parent and child, it's like at least I'm stronger than the child. But if it's like a partner and it's like, you know, we're in the same world and we're looking at the same things and, you know, I might be a little bit stronger in some areas, but it's I'm not that much stronger because we're both humans. It's like we can't both panic. So mm-hmm. even if even if you don't know how to get out of the situation, then maybe the only thing that you can do is to be the calm one. It's like, I'm going to decide I'm not going to panic. <laughs> you talking about being on a sinking boat uh, reminded me of the story about calming the storm. Um, exactly. Where there's this storm going on and then Jesus is asleep in the boat and all the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you asleep? We're going to die. And then he stands up and he just calms the storm. He rebukes the winds. I would have loved to see that happen. <laughs> hey, Shut wind, up, winds. Cut it out. Stop it. <laughs> he talked to the wind like I talked to my students. 
I am ashamed of your behavior. You, this is unacceptable. I am going to put you in a corner, Storm, and, and make you think about your actions. I wonder if it was like Jesus cursing the fig tree. Where the yeah. fig tree doesn't grow any figs, or doesn't have any figs, and he says, may no fruit grow on you ever again. I wonder yeah. if it was like that when he's yeah. talking to the winds. <laughs> um, but the disciples to Jesus are definitely saying, I told you my level of concern, and you walked by like you never heard. But also, he he can tell them that it's going to be all right. And obviously, Tyler, Joseph's wife, can't tell him that. <laughs> yeah, and no. so I mean... Yeah, so it's like the difference is that Jesus really did have the power. Um, but he, even then, even though he had the power, it's like, I think that one of the things that he wanted his disciples, I, I, it seems to me that one of the things that he wanted his disciples to do is is to have faith when he wasn't there anymore. Because he says, I'm not, I'm not going to be with you here forever. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he rebuked you. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Because... He, I mean, he warned them repeatedly, you know, I'm, you know, there's going to be a time when you're going to have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm not going to be with you all the time. And so (laughs) we can't, we can't be exactly in the same position. We can't act like Jesus all the time, which I think modern Hollywood movies often encourage us to think that we can act like Jesus all the time because they always play like, there's like, um, Sherlock Holmes, Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes, who is so brilliant that he's never really in danger because he can always figure a way out and uh, out of whatever situation. And so, like, you don't have to be worried about him. And I think we get sort of comfortable watching protagonists like that who just seem to always figure, figure it out. When I think one of the things that Jesus wanted us to, the attitude he wanted us to adopt was one where we admitted the fact that we may not actually be able to to solve every single problem that we find ourselves in, uh, but we're just but we're not going to panic. We're mm-hmm. we're going to have faith, and maybe that's what faith means. It yeah. reminds me. Also, sorry, I laughed a little bit while you were talking. I kept thinking about telling the winds to cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little distracting. Um, this this reminds me, or this whole concept uh, reminds me of WandaVision a little bit. Um, this one scene, I forget whether I talked about it. I think I didn't mention it when we actually had the episode, and then I was kicking myself afterwards because it's the best line in the whole show, and I didn't talk about it. So I'm making up for it now. Um there's a scene in WandaVision where Wanda, it's it's a flashback and she's sitting there with Vision and she's watching this show. And in the show, like the roof comes down or something and it falls on somebody. And she's just watching it and she doesn't look concerned at all. And Vision, who's sitting there watching with her, is a little concerned. And he's like, is he okay? And she's like, yeah, he's fine. And he's like, how do you know? Because on the show, they haven't seen this guy come up yet or they haven't seen him that he's okay. And she says, it's not that kind of show. So she's able to be unconcerned about what happens to him because she knows that it's not the kind of show where someone gets seriously injured. And even if he does, then it's all for the better and he'll heal and everything will be okay. So you can tell by the narrative that you're in what kind of show um, 
whether you need to be concerned about these characters, what kind of show it is. And uh, I think when you look at the world, um, the people who are the most afraid of anything that happens, who are the most concerned about any eventuality, any situation that comes up, any global pandemic, whatever it is, the people who are the most afraid are the people who aren't sure what kind of show they're in. Um, they're not sure whether this is a show that ends happily. And then the kinds of people who are most unconcerned, who are the least afraid, are the people who have some kind of assurance that they're in a particular kind of show, that they're in a world where the meta-narrative has a happy ending. Um, and if you're a Christian, then you know what kind of show you're in. You know that the meta-narrative of this show has a happy ending, and that gives you the ability to tell someone it will be okay. Um, Julian of Norwich said, uh, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which is one of my favorite quotes of all time. And I really believe that. And if you're a Christian, you believe that too, whether or not you know it. Um, and that gives you the ability to be unconcerned even when, well, not unconcerned. You're still afraid sometimes. There are still storms and uh, you don't want to die. <laughs> and sometimes there are things that can kill you um, or hurt you or, or do terrible things to you. But that if you really believe that all shall be well, those shadows are really passing things, no matter how big they are. So it seems like there's an implication throughout the song that he wants his wife to tell him that they'll be okay, even if it isn't true. So mm -hmm. what what are the implications of that? Is there a place for white or loving lies? Yeah, so that's an interesting question to me because... So the actual quote at the end of the song, he says, or he kind of shouts this in the background as the music is kind of fading out. In a world where you could just lie to me and I'd be okay, we'll be okay, we're going to be okay. So the grammar of that is a little bit hard to parse, but he says, in a world where you could just lie to me and I'd be okay, comma, in that world, we'll be okay. So he doesn't say that she is lying to him. He says that if she did, he'd be okay with that. <laughs> um... Which is an interesting thing to me to say at the end of a song where you're saying that, you know, we're going to hide, we're going to be in our bunker underneath the surface, we're going to quarantine together. Um, but that never seems to be where he gets his calm or any kind of level of calm. Um, it's from her telling him that he's going to be okay. And then he admits at the end that it doesn't really matter if that's true. It doesn't really matter if they're going to be okay. It matters that she tells him that. And that is what makes it okay. So what I think is really interesting there is, first of all, it doesn't seem to matter to him so much whether or not it's true. And the fact that it seems like her words have the ability to shape reality for him. That the very fact of her saying that it's okay makes it okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not totally sure what to think about that because then is that a lie or not? If you say it's, it is okay and it's not okay, but you're saying it's okay makes it okay... Have you really lied or did you just remake the world into what you want it to be? Were you like Orpheus and uh, yeah, or Wanda? you could see the world the way it should be in spite of the way that it is? <laughs> right, right, right. I feel like that's that seems to be a theme that just keeps on coming up in this podcast. It seems to be a, our fundamental problem. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, <laughs> Can you really create the world? <laughs> yeah. Can you tell a lie? Yes. So 
Yeah, I know. I remember telling, always having the trouble as a speech coach because when my students are nervous before they give a speech, the conventional thing to say is you're going to do fine. And I've never always been totally okay with saying that because I don't know if you're going to do fine. And yet I always mm-hmm. say that because what else are you going to say? Um, right. But I think in answer to your question, this actually makes me think again back to our discussion about J.R.R. Tolkien and his essay on fairy stories and the importance of creating fantasy worlds um, and what he talked about as man's role as sub-creator. That was his phrase for it. Man is sub-creator. We're not creators, we're sub-creators, which means that we can take the materials out of the world and, and make something else out of it. And I think what's interesting about this, especially in relation to this video, is because when you look at the music video, they're creating this music video together. First, they're creating something to begin with in while in quarantine. But later, they actually they, they bring their wives into it and their kids into it, and they start putting these glow-in-the-dark stars. They make this little project where they start putting the glow-in-the-dark stars in the wall, which I thought was really cool. I remember that when I was in college... I actually did that. I bought a bunch of glow-in-the-dark stars and I charted out the entire winter night sky constellations with strings, you know, a little brown string. How did you have that much time in college? <laughs> I didn't. I've never heard this story before. I, I didn't have that much time, but I did it anyway. And <laughs> so, and I did that wherever, wherever I went, whenever I went, went to a new dorm or when I went to the new house, I would put my, my chart of the night sky up on the ceiling. And, um, and then I bought a little, some AstroTurf too. And I put that on the ground so I could just, you know, lie on the grass, grass and look at the stars. And, oh my gosh. And, um, you know what? I think it was, it was worth my time. It was a worthy use of my time. It was, it was not a waste of time at all. And, and it, and it did a lot more good for me than the little stress packet that the university sent to us where they give us like a stress ball or something, you know, and it's like, <laughs> wow, thanks a lot. Solving my, the mental health problem, like a real champ, you know, with my little squeezy ball, <laughs> you, you sent me a squeeze so ball. You're like, just thanks a lot. It's like, that's, that's the exact, that's the thing is that the mental health, we we talk about the mental health crisis and the mental health epidemic and our solution to it is go to counseling and take and squeeze stress balls. And it's like, (laughs) okay, I'm not saying I'm not denigrating the profession of therapy as, as a legitimate thing, but I mean, it also depends on how you're using it. This has come up repeatedly, and even I, I do this even even when my students are like stressed out, as a lot of them are right now, is like, and that when they talk about their mental health or they talk about their depression, it's like tell a story, make up a world, you know, mm-hmm. put stars on the ceiling, and create things. Create things like mm-hmm. maybe the reason why we're having mental health problems. Maybe the fundamental reason why is because we're not creating. And like, so sub-creation. That's so so interesting to say. That's so interesting to say because so many people in quarantine, this is exactly what they did. Yeah. The thing that they did when everything shut down and they had to be inside and the way that they stayed sane is they made something. Um, I don't know. Do you, have you seen Bo Burnham's Inside? No, no, I haven't. Okay, Bo Burnham is a comedian who is very mentally troubled uh, in yeah. a 
depression and anxiety sort of way. And he relies on that, honestly, for his comedy. And he created this comedy special, basically, alone by himself during quarantine called Inside, because he was inside all the time. And it's horrifying. It's really... It's basically watching a grown man disintegrate um, in real time. And there's something real about it. But I really do believe that creating that was a way of him keeping himself sane. That it's not... It wasn't making him go insane. It was the only thing linking him to reality. Is creating the art that he knew how to create. Which is what so many people did during quarantine. Anyway, I interrupted you. Keep going. Well, okay. I actually... I might differ a little with you on that that note. Because for me... For me, it seems to me important the kind of fantasy that you are creating. Um, Yes, that's true. So... And that's why I was focusing on the line, you walk by like you never heard. It's like when you're trying to create a fantasy in order to solve the the prison that you're in, it, it makes it's, it's important that you're actually creating some sort of world that's outside of yourself. Um, so I think that maybe creating something where you are focusing on your mental illness may stop yourself from becoming insane but if you want to do something but maybe it will slow it down but i don't know if it will really help uh help as much as it would help and if you wanted to do something positive to really reach a state of of calmness of realness if you if you really want to escape then what you have to do is is truly create something meaningful and, and good and beautiful. And I think that that's, you should set your aim high, in other words. And that's why, you know, comparing the kind of fantasy creations that, say, Bo Burnham made compared to, like, J.R.R. Tolkien. And J.R.R. Tolkien had plenty of reason to be mentally ill. And it's like he suffered a lot in his life. I mean, he went through the trauma of world war world war one which i would say is in some ways significantly worse than bo burnham or anyone else's situation right now like world yeah. war one was not a joke but the world that he created as a result of that was lord of the rings i mean like that's all that's a lot different to me mm-hmm. and so i think that when it comes and I and I and I that's I think one of the things I like about this song and about the music video is what was the fantasy they chose to create is they chose to make the night sky and I think the night sky is a good thing it's a good portrait uh, it's a worthy thing to be painting about I don't think that Bo Burnham's inside is the ideal the ideal world to create to combat that kind of mental illness or fear or panic created by something like a global pandemic. But I think the act of creation is better. Creating something is better than creating nothing at all. Right. Um, Yeah. And that his, his state after creating that, even if it's a reflection of his mental state, that is, um, so honest as to be horrifying that the act of creating that leaves him in a better place than creating nothing at all. Um, but I agree, I agree with you that creating the night sky and doing it with your family 
that that makes all the difference. That part of the reason that this song is able to be kind of bouncy and happy is that uh, Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn both respectively are with their families. And the lines in the song about, uh, I'm asking you to stay in my bunker underneath the surface and how part of what makes the quarantine bearable, what makes it okay, is the fact that they are doing it together. And that's true for people, I mean, everywhere. Anybody who was in quarantine alone has a really rough go of it. <laughs> Whereas mm -hmm. um, people who were able to be with their families or uh, quarantine with friends or um, any sort of family, those people had a better time um, because you're able to do it with people you loved. And being together in the midst of a tragedy or in the midst of something panic-inducing is better and uh, reduces fear, brings down your level of concern, um, even if the, the situation is the same. The pandemic is the same whether or not you're alone, but you are less afraid of it when you are with people and creating something beautiful. Um... Which is, which is wild, wild to think about, but so demonstrably true across history that you can't really argue with it. It's just a fact of what people are like. I, I was very uh, fortunate to have uh, family and friends to help me get through, get through the pandemic. Um, I think that I went on a solo backpacking trip once uh, to see if I could live uh, live without people for four days. And what I learned from that is that I couldn't, which is, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is something I think I, I would like to be able to be better at, but I had to, I had to learn that I had to learn yeah. uh, that I, that I need to, that I, that I rely on, on people in order to get me through tough times, especially particularly my family. So one, one story that this reminded me of a little bit, um, really on the whole, the telling a lie um, or something that might not strictly be true in order to sort of remake the world or to love another person. Obviously, I condone truth-telling. <laughs> you should tell the truth. But also there are some situations that are so complicated um, that I think there's a space for talking about whether telling the, the exact truth or the strict truth is a good thing. And there's this story by Mark Twain called Was It Heaven or Hell that talks about that exact that exact idea. Uh, the gist of it is there's a, a mother who is dying and um, she has a daughter, but she's so sick that she doesn't really see her daughter very much. And she has a housekeeper. I think actually in the original story there are two sisters and both characters are there. Um, but one of them is the housekeeper and... Uh, the housekeeper um, is an absolute truth teller. Her moral compass is so strict as to forbid any kind of lying or any kind of deception whatsoever. Um, and this little girl, who is the daughter of the mother, um, tells a really little lie, like a, t a tiny little lie. And the housekeeper makes her go in to apologize to her mother for telling a lie. And while she's in there, the little girl catches the illness that the mother has. And so this housekeeper is taking care of both of them. Um, and then the little girl dies. And the mother is also about to die. And so the ending of the story is that the housekeeper goes to talk to the mother. And 
the mother in a, f- a few minutes before she dies says how is my how is my daughter um is she okay and the housekeeper thinks for a minute and says she is well and then the mother dies so this whole yeah <laughs> this whole question of her her compass like her rule which is don't tell a lie always tell the truth is a good rule right that's good that's important you should tell the truth but in that kind of situation she has the choice between creating a world for this mother in the minutes before she dies that is sort of safe and happy or allowing those final moments to be horrible for the mother um and i mean we could argue about whether or not that's the correct moral decision to make in that or any other moment. I think Kant would probably have a lot to say about it. Um, <laughs> categorical imperative and all. But uh, this song, I think, treats treats of that issue a little bit too. That she he asks her to tell him that it's okay. Really, whether or not that's true. And um, there might be a place for... Like we were talking about earlier, telling the little the little white lie to your student that they're going to be fine. Because there's a chance that by telling that maybe fiction, you are actually creating the world in which that thing is true. Um, so that was one, one thought that I had. There's an, Okay, so there's a line in the song that's a little weird. Uh, he says at the beginning of the second verse, he goes... Uh, panics on the brain, Michael's gone insane, Julie starts to make me nervous. So he name drops randomly, like, Michael and Julie, and nobody really knows what to make of that line. But it seems like maybe you have an interpretation (laughs) of that line, and I'm very curious to hear what it is. Yeah, well, um, well, uh, you know, Michael is the patron saint of paramilitary, special ops, police, and firefighters, and everyone involved in dangerous jobs. And Julie is the patron saint of illness and disease. Um, So it seems to me like given the context of when that was written, when there was a lot of uh, problems on our political front concerning the our uh, security, our security in police officers and in the broader uh, in the broader scene uh, in concerning our, our national safety and also obviously COVID. So, I mean, I don't really know what to make of that. I just, I just think that's a pretty valid interpretation of what Michael and Julie is about, which is, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. interesting. I think all the Stoa Mars Hill uh, topics are usually selected because there's some reference to, if not Christianity, at least Judeo, well, Christendom or ideas Mm -hmm. in Christendom. So, there's that, that that kind of reference to and what he's doing seems to me, at least poetically, is that he's zooming out. And it's more interesting to say it that way than to just say we are having problems with cops and covid right now, because then that yeah. would just kind of really date it um, and, and make it really specific. But Michael is not just the. patron saint of police you know it's the patron saint of people in dangerous jobs Mm -hmm. and he's julie's the patron saint of illness and disease so it 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 works better as a piece of poetry in that in that particular sense to be to be more vague or more broad in general than than specific and then we can kind of 
look at what everything is look at what's happening in more than just a political way but also in kind of a spiritual way um which is yeah. another way of of kind of curbing the the insanity mm-hmm. my well michael's gone insane you know it's yeah. sort of a fun way of, of putting it so i don't know yeah. everything there is to take take out of that but that was one of the things taking us back to so we've made a lot of connections to christianity here um but one that i think uh actually kind of brings us back to finding nemo i've also been making lots of references to previous episodes uh but way back when we talked about finding nemo we talked about the idea that um true love casts out fear the first john verse uh there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love um, I think that applies here too, because, uh, he says that she can bring down his level of concern by telling him it's all right. And then in the music video that the family's all together and they're making an art project and they're putting stars on the wall. Um, and that it's this show of love, of familial love. And then that is really what brings down his level of concern. So the love between them and the love that he has for his family is both what makes him afraid and what makes him not afraid at the same time, which is like Marlin, right? Because Marlin, Marlin's love for Coral and his love for Nemo is what causes him to be afraid for Nemo over time. Um, but then that same love is what casts out that fear in the end. And that that's what, what's happening for Tyler Joseph too, that he is afraid because he loves his family and doesn't want them to be hurt and doesn't know how much to be afraid of this pandemic and how bad really is it? And what if someone gets sick and we have a, an infant daughter and what are we going to do? But then that same love, um, casts out that fear in the end, just like, just like with Marlon. Yeah. It's actually almost paradoxical when you really think about that verse, perfect love casts out fear because, you know, once you have, a family that you are responsible for and take care of, you have more reason than you ever have to be more afraid. And mm-hmm. yet in that situation, that is the precise situation where you can't, if you actually love them. And so it, you know, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of a mystery. I, I suppose I remember, um, I guess I have, I have one more story this uh, another story that my professor was telling me one of my my philosophy professor once told me um that there was there was when it snowed at 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 the my college at whitworth there was a, a section on the campus where you could see you know you you he, he was trying to make a trail uh between a uh, footprint trail to once once the snow set there was a trail that you you would you would make and then it became the trail that everyone took the pathway that everyone took and so he was he really kind of made it his hobby to to make the straightest pathway between this this uh i don't i don't remember it was like some sort of uh 50 foot gap or something and he was you know always like looking down like focusing really hard on trying to make the straightest path he could possibly do and so he would like look down and then he would turn around and it was all messed up and he would get all mad and he was doing this for years until Mm -hmm. one time he decided he wasn't even going to look down at all 
there was a street light right up ahead and he just looked at the light and he just followed the light and then he turned around and it was the straightest path that he had ever made and it was like such a simple thing but it's like of course of course yeah right? it's, you know you look at something other than your feet and that's how you make a straight path and and then of course he applied that like that's that's life you know mm-hmm. you've got to You've got to look at the North Star and you've got to uh, look look to Jesus when you're walking. That's that's the only way you're going to be able to walk on water. And it's like, but I can't. But 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 you can't. And that's that's all there is. That's all there is to it, my friend. <laughs> you know? <laughs> wow. That makes me so happy. I feel so ready to go on and face the end of the semester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could, we could, we could do it, folks. There's um. We can do it. There, there's a saying in Mandarin. It is "jiao," which is what they shout when they're trying to encourage people, and it means add oil, mm. add add fuel. So, let us, let us go forward, uh, friends. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Oakville and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the Netflix series Stranger Things. Until then, friends, we hope you're in the right show. I know you can see.